A new Taka Airlines 737-300 is doing a routine flight from Belize to New Orleans when something goes really wrong on descent. What caused this plane to have to make an emergency landing on a levee just five miles from the airport? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. You might hear some squeaking in the background. Yeah. The dog is very excited today. (laughs) I don't know why. He's just so playful. He wants to play right now. When we have to record. So, apologies for that. We already tried to record once, and he just immediately was barking at the cat downstairs. So you may hear some hissing and or barking. Things happen. You've been warned. Uh, Hello to our new patrons. Thank you to Amy and DM Sarah. David upped his. Hey, cool. Thanks, David. Thanks. You're a cool guy. We We already knew that. We like your stories. Thank you, everyone, for joining our Patreon. And helping us get money. Thank you. Sorry, there's going to be a slight delay. Probably not by the time you hear this, but we're out of uh, patch stuff. So we'll get that to you ASAP. Yeah. Yeah, you should have it by the time you hear this. Hopefully. All right, friendos, any other housekeeping? housekeeping? I'm sorry for last week. Those of you may have noticed, I stopped talking in the second half. <laughs> I was like falling asleep. <laughs> I had too much margarita. <laughs> Admittedly. And I literally was just sitting up here staring at Nick, I know, trying was, not to fall asleep. I was going through the findings and recommendations and stuff, and I was like looking over at you, and there was no response coming from your side, and... Not only was there no response, but you were just unresponsive. <laughs> you, were, you were staring, like, at the table. I like, was sleeping with my eyes open. Yeah, pretty much. It really did look that way. I was like, uh, there's no help Are there. Are you okay? <laughs> I was fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. I so. just uh, had too much alcohol, so that's on me. We need something for the August listener episodes. Since it's back to school, do we want to do any flight school stories? Yeah, sure. If you have any flight school stories... That would be the day. Or something like that. Something related to learning. Learning. Instruction. Eventually, we'll just have to say, please send stories, because we can't figure out what... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, also, please just send stories. Yes, because we do enjoy stories. Remember, it doesn't have to be in the theme, so... I feel like that's going to be September. Like, what do you do for September? It's nothing. Fall story. (laughs) No, because it's still, like, October, November. That's still more fall. Maybe. Here's what we'll do. If you have a suggestion... For September, October, or November, send it to us, email, messenger, doesn't matter, and we'll pick one person and we'll let you know whose, t- whose story topic gets in for that month. Hard to imagine that by October we'll have been doing aviation stories for a year. Actually, by September. That's true, actually. Well, okay. Then October will be two years of the podcast. Yeah, wow. That's wow. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> That's really anyway. weird. Wild. What are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Taka Airlines Flight 110. I would like to preface this by apologizing. And also saying this is also your guys' fault. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, so there's multiple facets to this apology. So, first off, I apologize to Rich. We probably should have said no on this one, because there is not a full report. We are going to abide by and honor our pledge that we will do this episode, do this episode. uh it's gonna be shorter 
It is. It's an interesting story, for sure. But, yeah, the report was five whole pages. Five pages. Oh, no. And those five whole pages were all very brief. So... For a large portion, at least of mine, I don't know how much of Nick's, I, we're relying on the Air Disasters episode. Yeah, that and the Wikipedia page, the little bit that is in the report. That's pretty much it. That's what we had to go on. Like I said, it is a really interesting story, so I understand the uh, desire to have this one. But man, it is. There's just like no report. It's just yeah. mind-blowing. The other half of this apology is that this is going to sound very similar to a lot of uh, stories we've covered recently. In a few ways. That is all your fault. <laughs> we don't make our schedule. You guys make our schedule. And you guys all just happen to recommend the same kind of failure. Over and over and over again. For but the last right. couple of months. <laughs> so, that's that okay. being said. That's because they're the most mind-blowing, to be fair. This one does have some pretty cool things about it, though. Pretty crazy stuff. Crazy stuff, indeed. That said, this happened on May the 24th of 1988. This was a 737-300. The tail number November 75356. Is this a passenger flight? It is a passenger flight. This airplane was two weeks old at the time. Oh, well, that's when you're going to find problems. <laughs> it was new. Very new. As Very in they new. were worried about chipping the paint. Yeah, they were worried about chipping the paint. This is a flight from Belize City to New Orleans. Nolens? Nolens. The Louis Armstrong New yes. Orleans airport. The captain for today's flight is Carlos Dardano. Dardano? Dardino? Dardano. Dardano. He's a unique individual. Yes, he was 29 years old. Oh, hey. That's he, not the only reason he's unique. Yes, we'll talk about this. He had 13,410 hours, which is quite a bit for a 29-year-old. Oh, yeah. Some of our first officers haven't even had that much. Yeah, so he has quite a few flight hours, but he... Was He used to fly for a general aviation company before this, doing smaller flights, just little Cessna flights to and from small towns. And in one of those, he ended up, was it Guatemala? Uh, El Salvador. El was Salvador. having their civil war. They were having a civil war in El Salvador, and he was trying to get some passengers out of there as quick as possible. And he got shot in the face just before taking off. And he managed to get them out of there, flew the plane, landed safely somewhere else had to have his left eye removed. He is a single eye captain. You can do that? That was my question. <laughs> that is the question of the day. Because your depth perception is off because exactly. you only have one eye. I'm not sure that this would work today. But at the time, he was It is still... the 80s. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the uh... 80s, and he flies for a Belize airline. Okay. So, so okay. <laughs> but also, it seems a little dangerous. Yes. Just a little bit. Yes. The first officer for the flight is Dionisio Lopez. Couldn't find any age for him, but he had 12,000 hours. So between the crew, there's actually a lot of hours. They're both very experienced. Yeah. But the airplane is new and new to the airline. So I couldn't find any hours for the type for either one of them, but I know it's not much. There was, there was also an instructor on board be it that it is a new airplane, and he was actually just there to mostly learn about the 737 and see it in action so that he could better train on it. Is this like the original 737? This is the classic. Yeah, this is the classic oh, okay. version. Classics are 3, 4, and 5. The originals are 1 and 2. The 100 and 200, and then the classics are considered 
300, 400, 500. And then, and then the NG is... NG and then the max. Yeah, got it. Yep. Far too many 737s. <laughs> <laughs> but the classic series, or what was to be the new series at the time of 737. The instructor on board was Arturo Soli. I don't have any other, any other information about him other than his name. He was flying jump seat in the cockpit. The flight departed Belize City normally, and the majority of the flight proceeded normally. The flight was cleared to descend from flight level 350, or 35,000 feet, by the air traffic controller to begin their descent to New Orleans. While descending, the flight crew could see some heavy thunderstorms ahead, out of the windows, as well as on their new onboard radar. Woohoo! Yes, this was a relatively new thing. They could actually see the density of precipitation on their newly installed radar on their new airplane. They could see that there were two intense precipitation areas on either side of their intended flight path, so they attempted to squeeze between the two areas, still planning to fly through the rain, though. But basically there was two red spots on their radar saying that there was really intense rain in those two areas, and they were intending to fly right between them. The flight entered the clouds at about 30,000 feet. At that time, the crew selected anti-ice and weather protection features to prevent damage or dangerous situations due to the weather. The airplane quickly began being pelted by rain, hail, and heavy turbulence as it flew through the thunderstorm. A few minutes later, as the plane was descending through 16,500 feet, both engines suddenly shut down simultaneously. Fun. Remember what I said about this being similar to, like, everything we've covered recently? (laughs) We have a dual engine failure again. This meant that they also lost all hydraulics and electrical power, apart Uh from the backup battery that powers the altitude and attitude indicators. The APU was then started by the crew, which brought the hydraulics and electrical power back online as they descended, or glided, rather, through 10,500 feet. During the electrical downtime, the air traffic controller had lost the plane from their radar, what with, you know... No transponder? No transponder. And they were also unable to communicate with the flight by radio, since, you know... No radio. No radios. So this had the air traffic controller concerned, of course. Once power was restored, though... The flight declared an emergency and explained the situation to the air traffic controller. The air traffic controller initially gave the flight vectors to land at a naval air station nearby. The flight crew then attempted to do a windmill restart of the engines. The attempts were unsuccessful. Doesn't the knots that you have to go have to be fast enough to do that? Yes, which they were actually moving pretty fast, but it's still, they couldn't get it to restart by windmill. So the reason... That they couldn't get a windmill restart to be successful was the levels of precipitation. The windmill restart is hinged on the fact that you have enough airflow. Well, it's hard to have enough airflow when there's water in the air. A lot of it. So that's why that didn't work. Mm. Yeah. The crew then attempted to restart the engines normally, which uses the APU as a... Power source. Power source. It's like jumping them. Yep. Yeah. Suddenly, one of the engines ignited came back online. They followed with the same procedure on the other engine, which then also ignited. So they suddenly had both engines back online. They reported to the air traffic controller that their engines were restarted and that they could make it to New Orleans. Moments later, the captain attempted to add power to the engines, but the engines remained at idle. So they prematurely said, 
<laughs> to the air traffic controller that they could make it to New Orleans, not knowing that they didn't actually have any thrust from either engine. Moments after this, both engines began flaming out as alarms sounded in the cockpit. The crew were then forced to do the unthinkable. They had to shut down their own engines, both of them. Otherwise, they were going to overheat. Yep. Which is worse? Yes. So well, that could go boom, boom. Yes. Yes. So they shut down both of their engines. The first officer once again made a mayday call to the air traffic controller. The air traffic controller offered vectors to the lakefront airport, which is very close to downtown New Orleans, on the lakefront. What do you know? But the plane was already down to about 3,000 feet by this point, and they were still over six and a half miles away from lakefront. And Much they're descending. Too far to make it. They're descending at about a rate. Based on my math from the episode, at about a thousand feet per minute. Yeah. So they're gonna land in three minutes, whether they like it or not. And three miles. Oof. So they're not. Yeah, they're they're not gonna make it. Basically. Dang. The crew began looking for locations to ditch the airplane in the water. They aimed for a canal that was in sight ahead of them. Twelve o'clock. Yep. They were initially planning to ditch in the canal with the flaps and landing gear retracted. Suddenly, the first officer spotted a levee nearby that appeared wide enough and flat enough to land on. Be so, that this is New Orleans. Yeah, for reference, this is New Orleans. They have a bunch of levees built into the city to prevent flooding. That may or may not have worked for certain giant natural disasters, but they're there. Yes, because most of the city is below sea level, much like Amsterdam. To line up with this grass levee, which the crew agreed they could land on, they all agreed. They made the decision. To line up with this grass levee, the crew had to perform a side slip maneuver, which is basically a... It is somewhat hard to explain for visual reference in your mind, but... It's to slow down airspeed so that you're not going too fast, Well, right? and it's to... It's a hard turn. So basically the airplane goes into... It's essentially like... It's a like yaw a, turn, kind it's of. It's a yaw turn, but it's a drift in the air to... So it's a hard. We did a slide slip when we went to uh, Sterling yes. with Brendan. You, um, yes. Brendan actually gives a really good explanation of it in our Gimli Glider episode because yes. they also did a slight side slip because that captain was a glider pilot, and this is normally a maneuver for small aircraft and gliders. Right. So basically, you cross the controls between your rudder and your ailerons. So you cross the controls; they go in opposite directions. It puts the airplane into this weird maneuver, but it it allows them to drop altitude relatively quickly, and bring the airplane in at a good speed and altitude. This is not a maneuver that's typically carried out by airliners, ever. <laughs> like ever, ever. Except in this case in the Gimli Glider, pretty much. <laughs> they lined up for landing, dropped the landing gear and the flaps, and prepared to make an emergency landing on the levee. The levee had a steep upslope on the left side, and water on the right side making the usable area very narrow. They also had to clear a large concrete wall at the beginning of the levee before touching down. That said, the crew managed to do all this, and the airplane touched down smoothly but firmly on the levee. Huzzah! And slowed down naturally so as not to do anything drastic to lose control and cause a more dangerous situation. The airplane came to a stop on the grass, and an evacuation was carried out using the escape slides. All on board survived. We've covered a lot of those lately. Yes, that's yeah. the other similarity. 
So, All on board survived with only minor injuries. The airplane was completely intact upon landing, which is unbelievable. Nothing happened to this airplane nope. with the landing. Passengers and crew on board called it a spectacular landing. No turbulence. A perfect landing, mm-hmm. despite it being a hard landing. <laughs> the captain was actually interviewed for the Air Disasters episode and called it the most beautiful landing I ever made. And I mean, I would say so. When you have to do a dead stick landing, which is landing with no power. Yeah. Yep. Did a real Um, good job. He did great. They ended up landing next to a NASA facility. Oh. It was... Their Michoud assembly facility where they made parts for the space shuttle. Yep. Oh. That's kind of cool. It's kind of convenient. Yes. And that facility is still there. So they weren't actually that close. They were five miles away from... The New Orleans airport, I believe. This is where they ended up, though, and this is where Lakefront is. So they were not very far away from Lakefront, but they were still basically out in the middle of nowhere. They landed here. So this is the levee that was protecting the Michoud's assembly facility. Yep. So, I mean, kind of convenient. Sort of. Right next to NASA. NASA helped. (laughs) NASA did help, and we will get to that in a little bit. We're going to take a break because of the way this is uh, formatted. And we'll be back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And we're back. Oh, hello. Hi. All right. So, again, I do want to preface my section with the fact that the analysis in this report was almost non-existent. In fact, I am going to read the entire analysis at the end of my portion, but most of what I have, other than that one paragraph in the report, comes from the Air Disasters episode, as well as some bits and pieces from the Wikipedia page. This investigation was performed by the... NTSB. The National Transportation Safety Board who arrived on site a few hours after the miraculous landing. Since they had such a remarkable landing, both black boxes were recoverable. What do you know? Hey. They were able to interview the captain, who reported that both engines flamed out at 16,500 feet, and that the storm was intense, with so much rain and hail that they could barely see out the window, and passengers reported hearing lots of hail. This new 737-300 was equipped with CFM-56 engines, which we've talked about here before. They are very common and almost never fail. We actually talked about a double flameout on a CFM-56 already. BMA. Oh. Very recent. Very recent. It's a 737-400, same engines. While the plane was still parked on the levee, investigators were able to take a boroscope, which is a stick with a camera on the end, Basically. basically to the right engine and found that although there was no damage to the compressor stage of the engine, the turbine blades were charred and melted, which confirms what the crew had reported about their engines overheating after the restart. It was at about this point, however, that investigators noticed that the plane was sinking into the levee. So it had to be moved somewhere else to examine everything. And here Nick will take over briefly to explain how they moved forward from that. So it's actually really interesting because obviously there's a few options they could have done. The obvious one is they're sitting right next to the water. Why don't you put it on a barge and move it? Not so simple, though, because you would have to dismantle the airplane. There's no good way to pick it up. No good way to get it on a barge. Things like that. 
complicated, expensive, those kinds of things. So they went with an alternative. They went with that alternative, the one you're going, there's no way. They yeah, flew no, they it. did. They they took it off. They they flew it out of there. How? Yep. So they actually pulled the airplane over the NASA facility onto the concrete. They removed the right engine, replaced it, since they knew it was too melted. The left engine was deemed just, just undamaged enough to fly. <laughs> the right engine now was replaced and new. They the, put just enough fuel. I think it was 5,500 pounds of fuel. Yep. They basically put just enough fuel to get it off the ground, flew it empty. They brought out uh, some Boeing test pilots to get it off the ground. <laughs> they managed to take off in just over 1,000 feet, wow. which is nuts. I mean, most Cessnas don't do that. So they got this thing off the ground wicked fast in the grass. And actually, it was on an old World War II airfield, it turned out. Oh. Yep. Handy. Yeah. So they managed to take off the airplane in no time flat, and 17 minutes later, it was on the ground at New Orleans. Okay, then. That is how they moved the airplane. Dents and all. It's got hail dents all over it. It's. I'm surprised they even deemed it airworthy enough to move. But they did. I mean, they didn't have to go very far. Nope. No. I mean, they literally just had to go the couple miles to the airport. Yes. Yeah, exactly. But it's still crazy. It's Yes. It is pretty L- crazy. Like, that's what you deemed was the best option? You could have barged it, you could have dismantled it, or you flew it. They okay. flew it. Well, now that they have the plane in a better facility, they were able to remove the left engine and take that, as well as the much more damaged right engine, to the GE test facility in Ohio that was used for water ingestion testing during certification. Now, you might recall from our Southern Airways Flight 242 episode, which was episode 54, I looked it up, that water ingestion is done using a ratio of water to air in the ingestion. Engines are designed and certified such that most water is diverted away from the engine core and what amount does go through gets evaporated or drained through the bleed doors in the bottom of the engine. The engines were run under the FAA certification standards for engine power, which in the episode was depicted as 90%, and whatever water-to-air ratio was required. And the engines did not flame out. This seems like a dead end in a kind of way, but what it really means is that these engines weren't anomalous, and whatever caused them to flame out is now a risk for every CFM-56 engine out there. So it's kind of a big deal that it repassed the FAA water ingestion certification test. Especially since, I mean, this is not only used on all these 737s, which, mind you, was a lot. They were also used on the A320 and A319. And in a lot of military aircraft, too. Yes. So it's a big deal if something's wrong with all of them. But we also know that water isn't the only thing that the engine ingested. Both crew and passengers reported heavy hail. Hail forms when raindrops hit an updraft of air and rise to the colder altitudes where the raindrop then freezes. And then it falls. And then it falls as it becomes heavy before hitting another updraft, and the process repeats, adding a layer of ice each time. The more updraft columns there are, the bigger the hail is. Well. Until they're too heavy. Until they're too heavy and they, you know, fall, fall. So what size of hail is the engine certified to handle, you may ask? The answer is a mixture of a 1-2 to two inch diameter hail. What did they actually encounter? The dents in the fuselage indicated that the hail was an inch or smaller, which should be a good thing. Right? Because it's supposed to be certified for 1-2 to two inches. Right. Well, because the, the hail was smaller, more of it was able to pass the inlet fan blades and actually get into the engine. Oh, that's a boo-boo. <laughs> yeah. 
some of it went through the core and melted, creating more water in the engine. So investigators re-ran the water ingestion test at the FAA certification speed of what I assume is 90% engine speed from the episode, but this time with a higher water-to-air ratio to match the amount of water that would have been ingested plus what would have formed from the melted hail. And the engine still didn't flame out. Okay, so what's the problem? Having hit a wall, investigators went to the flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder data to find some kind of indication of what might have caused the engines to fail. In doing so, they found that the engines had actually decreased in power before the flameout. But it wasn't something accidental, but rather, the engines were brought down in engine speed intentionally. Why? For descent. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they were descending. So there was even more water that could get in? The flight crew brought the engines down to 35%, which changes everything. The engines are water ingestion certified at a much higher speed, which causes the fans to rotate faster and keep out more water. If the engines were running slower, more water would have gotten inside. So investigators went and reran the test, this time at 35% engine speed, and lo and behold, they flamed out. Aha! Uh-huh. Yep. Huzzah! Well, they found half the problem. The other half is why the engines couldn't produce thrust when they were restarted. Well, we've already talked about a symptom of the problem, which was the melted and charred turbine blades. Well, why would the engine have been on fire after restart? That's not normal. Normally when you restart an engine, you just go on your merry way. This is actually something we haven't talked about before. Investigators determine that a hot start had occurred. Because the engine hadn't been igniting fuel for a while, fuel had built up in the engine, too much fuel for the amount of air that was flowing in. When the engine reignited, there was an engine overheat from the flame reaching the turbine, because now the flame's bigger than it should be. Now, here's where my slight confusion is. The Air Disasters episode that this happened because the crew didn't have enough time to bleed fuel from the engine, but I've never heard of that happening before on engine restart, and I really don't know anything about it. Yeah, so I mean, my understanding of this would be, yeah, so they're they're trying to restart the engine, fuel is flowing, they've got the fuel pump on, fuel is flowing, but if it didn't reignite during multiple attempts, then that fuel is still there. Especially if they're not performing the procedure all the way through for some reason, which I don't entirely blame them, they don't have a whole lot of time, they're dealing with a lot, then, you know, they might have skipped a step that meant they were supposed to also be draining said fuel along the way, so that it didn't pile up, but basically it piled up. It just had too much The fuel-to-air, right, fuel-to-air ratio was off, especially since it was flooded with fuel and ignited, quite literally. And it, they didn't want it to go boom-boom. Yeah. So they turned off the engines. Yep. And the investigators actually didn't blame the crew at all for not purging the fuel. No. So. They were, they are hailed as heroes. It's more of like. I would like my engines to start, please. Yeah. Thanks. They're hailed as heroes, and quite frankly, they deserve it because that they was, did a really good job. This was an incredible thing. This is a brown pants kind of situation. Yes. Yeah, big time. And they managed to pull it off. I mean, it's incredible. They, they did an amazing job. Everybody survived, and the airplane was salvageable. I mean, that's just unbelievable. Actually, if you look up pictures, like on the Wikipedia page for this flight, you'll actually see the same airplane in southwest colors. Why? Because since it was salvageable. It went on to fly its entire life and normal. Yeah, and it got Southwest. it got sold to Southwest eventually. Yep. Because it, what do we know about Southwest? They only have 37s. Yep, it flew an entire lifetime, a normal lifetime for an airplane. Now, for the full analysis from the report, 
This was written with abbreviations galore and not in full sentences, so I'm going to read it with full sentences so it's not 100% verbatim, but the content's the same. Give me a break. Got it. During descent from flight level 350, or 35,000 feet, for IFR arrival to New Orleans, the flight crew noted green and yellow returns on the weather radar with some isolated red cells left and right of the intended flight path. Before entering clouds at 30,000 feet, the captain selected continuous engine reignition and activated engine anti-icing systems. The crew selected a route between two cells that displayed as red on the weather radar. Heavy rain, hail, and turbulence were encountered. At about 16,500 feet, both engines flamed out. The APU, or auxiliary power unit, was started and AC electrical power was restored while descending through about 10,600 feet. Attempts to windmill restart were unsuccessful. Both engines lit off by using the starters, but neither would accelerate to idle. Advancing the thrust levers increased the exhaust gas temperatures beyond its limits. The engines were shut down to avoid a catastrophic failure. An emergency landing was made on a levee without further damage to the aircraft. The investigation revealed that the aircraft encountered a level 4 thunderstorm, but the engines flamed out though they had met the FAA specs for water ingestion. The aircraft had minor hail damage. Engine number two was damaged from over-temperature. After the incident, an airworthiness directive was issued to require a minimum RPM of 45% and to restore the use of auto-thrust in moderate to heavy precipitation. The engine modification was provided for increased capacity of water ingestion. Yep. Which we'll get more to now. Yeah, so I mean, the gist of this, there's not, there's no findings. Well, there are, but they're poor. We've covered everything. We've basically covered everything that's in the findings. Yeah, so we've covered all the findings, basically. You know, I guess, actually, now I should just read the probable cause. Yeah, there's really... We've covered all the findings, and the, there are no recommendations. So, but we will talk about what changed after the probable cause. The probable cause, actually verbatim. The National Transportation Safety Board determines the probable cause of this incident to be a double-engine flameout due to water ingestion, which occurred as a result of an in-flight encounter with an area of very heavy rain and hail. A contributing cause of the incident was the inadequate design of the engines and the FAA water ingestion certification standards, which did not reflect the waterfall rates that can be expected in moderate or higher intensity thunderstorms. So they basically blame the whole thing on the engine manufacturers and the FAA for not having high enough certification standards. Which makes sense. Yeah. Because how would you know, right? On descent, you got a shit ton of hail coming in, and it just literally swamps the engine. Yeah. <laughs> Like, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That pretty much the only time you would go through that amount of water would be on takeoff or descent. Well, yeah. Because you usually fly above storms That's or around true. them when yeah. you're in cruising flight. So. Yep. And part of the part about the certification standards, yes, they do say specifically the waterfall rates, but it's also testing it at multiple engine speeds. Because, yeah, you can block out a lot of water when you're running at 90% speed, but if you're at descent rates... Right. Yeah. Cause... Which turns out is most of the time when you fly through storms. Exactly. <laughs> so it's like, uh, that seems pretty dumb. <laughs> so, yeah. No, it's like, I don't mean to, like, be a boo-boo on the FAA or anything, but, like, come on. <laughs> come on. So they changed a few key things. One, how these are certified. So, okay. changes that were made. The shape of the engine nose cone and the spacing of the fan blades were changed to better deflect hail. Yep, important things. Makes a lot of sense. Also on the engine, they added more bleed doors on the bottom so that more water can drain quicker so from that the it engine. doesn't pull up. I mean, that's good. 
and all CFM 56 engines were retrofitted within a year of that being designed and made. So the awesome thing is, is that this just wasn't a problem within a year. Yeah. That's pretty fast. That's a really quick retrofit. For Well, they kind of just knew what the problem was, right? Yeah. They yeah. were like, we were dumb. Okay. Okay. We were dumb. All right. We'll fix it. <laughs> and they okay. did. They fixed it. And then they fixed it. Like, they knew exactly what they had to fix. So. And the accident plane was returned to service within a month. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me. If it was just engine stuff. I mean, there was some like, hail damage and such, but they did all the repairs. They fixed I mean, all it, the paint it they was chipped. a perfectly yeah. good airplane. Brand new. Brand new airplane. Washed all the seats of the brown stains. <laughs> <laughs> With the brown pants. <laughs> the brown pants. Yeah. So, I mean, all these things, I mean, it was really, obviously, important changes. But more than anything, it was just an incredible story because they managed to pull off a landing that's just unheard of and unbelievable. Yeah. It really is. I mean, it was a last, literally a last-ditch effort. I would also argue that it's kind of more incredible than the Gimli Glider. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Because the Gilman Glider landed with damage. Actually, crash, crashed, yeah. Yeah. Yes. This airplane, undamaged. Due to, other than the weather, but undamaged. The Gimli Glider was pilot error. Well, it was a lot of error. It It was was a lot of errors. More than just the pilot. It was all around error. Wrong calculations and stuff. And then it was the plane, they had it in the metric system with that, not, and all that weird craziness. I mean, that's all the changes were made. Uh, the one last thing I have written from the Air Disasters episode. So this captain had a family history of aviation. He was a third generation pilot, yeah. which in the 80s, that's, that's pretty, kinda... ex- pretty impressive. Yeah. I mean, that means the first generation was probably really early in aviation. Like World War Two, World War One, World maybe. War One. Yeah. This is early. We're talking really early aviation. The last thing that they said in the episode is his son and daughter are also both pilots. That's both cool. professional pilots. It's kind of incredible. They like had a family photo at the end where he has his captain stripes and they both have first officer stripes. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. So, pretty cool stuff. It is cool stuff. Again, Hail the Hero did an amazing thing. Yeah, they did. They pulled off just absolutely incredible flight, landing, everything. And that's about it. That really is about it. That's Taka Airlines 110. 110. 110. Thanks for listening. Again, sorry for the short episode. That's kind of our bad. we've done a series of pretty long episodes lately. Some, yes. So, uh, every once in a while, (laughs) it has to have a short episode. Balance it out. Yeah, you gotta balance. Again, I want to reiterate, thank you to Rich for recommending this episode. Yes, thank you. It was actually (laughs) still fun because it is an interesting story. It's pretty amazing. It really is. It's It's fun when we get to say... Good news, and it was a really good story. Yeah. But also, it's not our fault. <laughs> I haven't looked ahead in our schedule to see if there are any more uh, dual engine failures. But in retrospect, can you all stop? Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> all right, friendos. Thanks to our patrons and our new patrons. Thanks. And to our upgraded patrons. And thank you. We high-key appreciate it. Yeah. And remember to submit your, like, flight school stories. We're gonna head on out and separate the pets. Have a great and healthy week, and we will catch you all next week. Keep your speed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. 
This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.